Good evening, everyone, and welcome back to The Real Science Exchange. This week's pubcast is one for the record books. We always say that this is where leading scientists and industry professionals meet. But tonight, we're sitting down with some of the absolute icons in the dairy nutrition industry. We'll take a trip down memory lane to talk about the history of feeding fat to dairy cattle. We'll then take a look at where we are today with feeding fat to dairy cattle, and then we'll take a peek into our crystal ball to see where the industry might be heading. Hi, I'm Scott Sorrell, one of your hosts for the Real Science Exchange. Dr. Zimmerman is also joining us here once again tonight. Uh, Clay, I think tonight might be uh, getting a, we might be getting a history lesson from some of the guys that really made history back in the day. I agree. I'm really looking forward to this tonight. Yeah, absolutely. I am as well. And I'm proud to introduce our guests tonight, Dr. Tom Jenkins and Dr. Don Palmquist, who are the real pioneers behind feeding rumen-protected fat to dairy cattle. We've also invited uh, Dr. Kevin Harvatine to join us tonight. He's essentially the new kid on the block, continuing in the, the tradition established by these two industry icons. Uh, thanks for joining us tonight, gentlemen. Don, I, I'd like to start with you. First, what are you drinking tonight uh, Tonight here at the pub? And then what's one thing our listeners might not know about you? Well, as far as what I'm drinking, I've got a, a shot of McAllen here that... Uh just just got opened for this show as far as what people don't know uh, I doubt that many of you know that I grew up in Oregon on a hop farm and I always liked cows as my dad did and uh, I milked cows for my uncle when I was in high school very well you know one other thing that they may not know that that I was uh, privileged to find out is that you you well, we're here in a virtual pub tonight. You actually have a real pub right in your 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 house there, and I've had the opportunity to uh, to enjoy a drink with you there. So, looking forward to doing that once again once uh, we get this pandemic behind us, uh, Don. Be glad to have you. <laughs> Great, Tom. Same question for you. What's in your glass, and what would you like to share with the listeners uh, that they may not know about you? Well, I got several drinks around me. Uh, one is a great bottle of wine that was sent to me that I'm not re yet ready to open by myself. I'll need some company for that. But in the meantime, um, I visited a number of micro small breweries in the Asheville, North Carolina area. And this is one from one called Burning Blush, which is in Milltown, which is next to Asheville Airport. And this is one of their Marzan lagers that they make there. As far as what they don't know, maybe my hobbies, I don't know. Most people know I'm into the fishing thing, do as much of that as I can. But another one that a lot of people don't know about is music. Uh, so I uh, have a band of my own uh, that I've been managing for quite some time now. Uh, I play trumpet in it. My daughter plays saxophone, and I have several other great local musicians. And um, so um, I'm sitting in the office slash uh, music room or recording uh, room at home here now where we have practices, and I do some of the recording and so forth. Oh, that's excellent. I did not know that. I'm a, I, Well, I used to be a trumpet player as well, but I haven't picked it up in years. Um uh, Kevin, this is your second time back to the exchange. Tell us about what you're drinking tonight and uh, tell us a little bit of something about yourself. Yeah, it's great great to be here with Dr. Jenkins and Dr. Palmquist. I, I, it, it's, I don't know how many times where I've gotten really excited about an idea and you start reading and you're getting more and more excited about it. And then you figure out, oh, Palmquist did this in the 70s or 80s or Jenkins did this already. Uh, so, so a lot of the history in, in lipids and a lot of what we know is, has been done there uh, so much that, that I always forget about it and have to go back and, and rediscover all of that. So it's great, great to be here. Uh, I have a scotch. I asked what Don was drinking and, and they said scotch. So I, I picked up a bottle of scotch to, to, to do the same. And then something uh, you might not know. So I grew up on a dairy farm, but I actually rebelled a little bit and had some Angus cows and actually went down the livestock route. So even interned at a Texas feedlot in the Panhandle and then came back to dairy uh, to come back into graduate school. So I, I don't know if that means I'm on the wagon or off the wagon, but I uh, had to have a bit of uh, livestock background too. 
Oh, excellent. Uh, excellent. Good to hear that. Uh, before we get started, I'd just like to thank everybody for uh, joining us tonight. I wanted, And I want you to know how much I respect you guys as scientists and as men. So with that, cheers, folks. Let's have some fun. Cheers. Scott, what are so, you drinking tonight? Skull. <laughs> so I, I, I'm drinking a, a, um, a Balvini Doublewood 12-year. And uh, I, I decided on the Balvini in part because, uh, Don, the last time you and I were together was at the Western Dairy Management Conference, the last one that we held in person. And you and I shared a Balvini. I don't know if it was the Doublewood or not, but you and I shared a, a, a Balvini then. So that's why I, I, I decided to pick that one up. So, uh, Don, choice. let's... Yeah. Let, let's start at the beginning. Uh, what were farmers doing to increase the energy density of diets prior to the invention of rumen protected fats? Well, when, uh, when artificial insemination really got going and cows were producing more and more uh, to get the energy and everybody was feed, feeding a lot of corn. Or on the West Coast where I was in California at that time, it was barley. And they were a little bit different, we knew that, but uh, especially in the Midwest, uh, high corn rations really led to a lot of problems with fat cows and bad feet and other issues. And um, so I, I chose to see whether fat was, could uh, really be an alternative energy source. So, so how much fat, what would the typical dairy diet have as far as the fat content prior to that? Well, really then it was uh, pretty much verboten to, uh, to use fat. Um, there was fats available, some tallow, some byproducts from, uh, from processing uh, corn oil and soybean oil, but it wasn't, it uh, really wasn't uh, very common to see anybody adding some feet some fat. Uh, after I got started, uh, people started, especially in the West, to use whole cottonseed, and that was uh, really pretty, uh, pretty successful. But uh, we just incorporated that, that in with the rest of the studies we were doing. And did they understand that that was the fat that was uh, providing the benefit of the cottonseed at the time? I think they did. Um, of course, the, the protein was, was useful, but uh, they were mainly using it as an energy source. Okay. Now, you and Tom are considered the fathers of, of the rumen inert fat market segment, if you will. What led you guys to, to come up with the idea that you needed a rumen inert fat and you needed to, to look for that? And, and please tell me that it, it happened in a pub like this and, you're the, and it involves some doodling <laughs> on the back of a napkin. Well, we were, we were trying different fats and... Um, in some digestion trials with some of my early grad students, uh, one of the significant things we found was that uh, the most important factor in those diets in terms of digestibility of the ration was the amount of calcium. And uh, that was when I advertised for a postdoc and was fortunate enough to have Tom join me. And uh, his his approach was to look at the interactions in the rumen between fatty acids, calcium, and fiber digestion. Um, yeah. That's published in a paper in Journal Animal Science, I think, 81, and uh, sometimes overlooked because the data there really show how we had to attack the, the issue from that point. Tom, why don't you talk a little bit about that, uh, that research you were doing? Well, first of all, let me say that Dr. Palmquist regularly reminds me that he had a number of good candidates for that postdoc position. Yeah. Uh, so I'm always reminded how lucky I was to be the one that was chosen for that. And uh, those names were very prestigious, by the way, the other <laughs> candidates he had. So indeed, I was lucky. Uh, yeah. You know, it was... We we recognized early on, I think, Don, that people were talking about calcium salts of fatty acids. Yeah. Not maybe not so much in this country, 
as they were in Europe and other places. And we began to perceive the benefits of combining those two together and alleviating some of the issues and the problems that come were uh, apparent from uh, fatty acids. Um, and we tried desperately in the beginning to try to create conditions in the animal where they would make them on their own uh, before we did anything else. So we did early studies with feeding additional fat sources and calcium sources in combination uh, and measuring the formation of calcium salts. And the methodology is a big part of this uh, because right from the very beginning, the, the first step that I really remember doing was having to develop an assay to determine calcium salt formation in ruminal contents. So that took Dr. Palmquist and I a lot of work and a lot of effort and verification in order to come up with and verify that procedure, which we then used in live animals to try to determine if there was calcium salt formation occurring on its own. Um, and then at some point, the, those results told us the conditions were not the best. The conditions were not the best for it to happen on its own in the rumen. And we said, we need to preform this. We need to put them together and feed them in that form so that we stand a much better chance of it uh, going through the rumen in that form. And then came a lot of work, uh, methodology, verification, and failures and the failures are list as longest of any of the list on this to try to come up with a method to put those uh, two things together, which we did on a very small scale, Don, in the laboratory yep. in just enough small quantities to run a couple in vitro tests. I might uh, interject that uh, I was thinking about uh, this making the calcium salts uh, before feeding the cow. Uh, and I was taking my first trip to Europe and I stopped at the Rowett in Scotland and talked to one of the most distinguished uh, faculty members in the fat area, Ken Luff. And I said, we're thinking about uh, feeding the calcium salt. And he said, it won't work. We've already tried it. He says those fatty acids are biohydrogenated just as if they were not in the calcium form. Well, I came back and we talked with, I talked with Tom about it. Well, he proceeded anyway, and he had the wisdom to measure fiber digestion as the, as the effect rather than biohydrogenation, and it worked wonderfully. So how much of the success do you believe had to do with the fatty acids that you were using, uh, right? Um, I'm just thinking about uh, were, they, were they already hydrogenated? I know that, that what um, some uh, companies ended up using was palm fatty acid distillate, which is high 16-0 uh, content. It, did, did, did that have something to do with it, uh, reduce the bio? No? We didn't use that at all. Okay. We didn't even know it existed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, so we were using tallow. Okay. But when the industry got interested and the first people to talk to me were from um, a company in England, well, they used calcium uh, palm oil, rather, as their source of fatty acids because that was the cheapest thing available in the industry. Okay. So those kind of issues had a lot of effect on how it went. Mm -hmm. and most so of our of studies, most of our studies was done with tallow. Um, I think we tried some um, uh, animal vegetable fat sources. Yes, we did. Uh, yeah, we tried a number of different uh, fat sources that were available at the time. Of course, at that time, uh, milk fat was not even an issue. People weren't even worried about it. About the composition, time. yeah. Yeah. Uh, we our milk yield was the primary measure for the success of fat feeding back at that time. Uh, 
Yeah. So we were we were using we had a good supply of cheap um, fat sources uh, like restaurant greases uh, that were very unsaturated, um, uh, but they caused rumen issues. But we didn't worry about milk fat at the time. We, there were just other rumen issues that we were worried about. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's interesting to think that back then, so you really would not have been worried about milk fat. You really had no interest in getting unsaturated fatty acids through to the cow anyway. Um, it, it was very much focused on energy and providing energy to high producing cow based on on what what everybody was looking for at that time, right? Yeah, and I think that goes back to the original question that Scott asked, well, you know, uh, what about the implications for high corn diets? So uh, Dr. Palmquist came along uh, and said, we don't have to feed all that corn to have all that energy. We can, we can take out a good bit of corn, put in a small amount of fat, have equal energy, and your fiber goes up when you do it. And many of the, pro the uh, animal health problems that Don mentioned uh, could be alleviated in the process. So that was kind of the driving force. And Donna, you know, I think there was a lot of criticism at the time because you mentioned there were a lot of uh, non-fat people around. Uh, I think you took a lot of hits from a lot of different places for getting into this fat business uh, because there are a lot of people that didn't want to buy into it. And get and push back quite a bit on you, and uh, you persevered through it. Uh, you knew you were right, and you just kept that engine uh, moving forward. Well, that is true. One of the issues, if you look at look at our publications in those time, um, Tom had clearly shown with his lab work that this could be an effective way to feed cows. But we don't have any production data from those those days. And the reason is making this stuff was a real chore and making it consistent in quality uh, added to the issues. And so it wasn't until some commercial people started investigating it and we could get a decent supply of the calcium salt that we began to get production studies reports. Tom, I want to circle back on something you said earlier. You talked about the many failures that you had done, and I was reminded of Thomas Edison, right, and creating the light bulb, and he had quite a few failures. Uh, it, can you tell us about some of the failures? Or what, what were some of the things that you thought might work that, that didn't? And I'm looking for a good story here if you've got one or two, and I know you do because I've heard some of them previously. Yeah, I don't know. You know, I tend to block those out. I try to forget about those. <laughs> and if you keep pushing here, they're going to come up and probably going to ruin my day. Uh, but we fought through so many uh, problems trying to push us forward. You know, like I said, um, you just, we found out you couldn't just throw fat. You just couldn't throw calcium into beaker and spontaneously they were going to react and make a calcium fat, which is the first thing we tried and it went nowhere. It was nothing. So then um, I remember seeing in a book by Hilditch, who Dr. Palmquist uh, drew my attention to that book, a chapter on synthesis of calcium salts and he had what was called a double decomposition method in there um, which was essentially to saponify the fat first uh, with sodium hydroxide or another alkali and then come in with a soluble source of calcium and I can remember going to uh, Don and saying well I stumbled on this um, is this worth giving a try and he said let's go at it essentially, and uh, we got some early success um, in uh, making calcium salts. We, you know, once you saponify fat, it goes into solution and becomes rather clear. And then when you add the calcium to it, when you get a reaction, you get this precipitate fallout. So it was, it was clear right away to us 
that we that we could achieve some level of success uh, by using that method. So we got over a big hurdle with that. Yeah. Mm. So I recall some stories about how you gentlemen uh, made your first calcium soaps. Uh, maybe you could kind of share share with our audience how you did that. Quite sophisticated, as I recall. Yeah. I'm going to leave that to Dr. Pongquist. He was he was the chief bucket master. Well, I had to contribute something. Um, so as Tom described, you know, the do double decomposition procedure, and we used alkali cans. Uh, we got alkali for Keldol uh, assays and so forth, a hundred pound at a time, and those were about the right size to make a few pounds of the calcium salt. Well, we had these on hot plates and we started in July, I think, in the feed mill and the, the, the workroom we had was on the south side of the building. And uh, we had these cans on, on big hot plates to keep everything cooking. And we had air conditioners in the windows to try to keep the place halfway cool. I think we blew a circuit a couple of times, but uh, so we got the reaction done and here's this precipitate with a lot of water. And we had to get that out of there and trying to figure out a procedure and we had an undergraduate helping us. And he went in the other room and came back with the mop bucket that they used to clean up the place. And we found that that, that was the most efficient way to get the water out of the calcium soaps. So uh, some of the people we worked with like to refer to the mop, mop bucket procedure. <laughs> it was slow. It was inconsistent. But uh, we got enough to do a few studies. And, and at that point, Don, it still had too much water in it. It did. So we had to yeah. spread it out on the floor and let it dry for a few days. Hmm. Yeah, which gave us some rather big lumps of fat which then had to be broken up some more. We ran that through a hammer mill, and then we had powder. And uh, some studies uh, Tom was doing with uh, measuring the fat at the intestine, we found that those fatty acids were almost completely hydrogenated in the rumen when they were in the, in the powder form. If, if I can just jump, jump in there, the, my understanding is this is not a tame reaction, right? Um, it, it, in, in it, you can actually catch fire, right? I think the way they do it now in the, in factories is they do a direct reaction with calcium oxide, which can be, uh, pretty vigorous. Quick did, did, did you guys ever have any, any issues that way? Not with the double de decomposition. Okay. I did at Clemson though. Did you? Uh, yeah. Um, I was making calcium salts of, of linseed oil. So I had some calcium linolinate. And that, he, it's harder to do that reaction with polyunsaturated fatty acids than it is saturated. And so the reaction didn't go complete to completion in the lab when I was making it it continued to react when it was in the feed bag. And I had a stack of feed bags uh, and the, the ones on the top dissipated the heat and didn't cause any problem. But the ones that were on the bottom, there was no place for the heat to go as the reaction continued. And you could, um, I've, I was only a step away from catching the place on fire. It got Ooh. so hot, yeah. In fact, Volak in England, who were the first people we worked with, were within a few weeks of launching the commercial project product, and they burned down a warehouse. So that wow. delayed everything for a year or so. I was just going to segue to to uh, to that um, in that. So there was a point in time when you guys you got a patent, right? On, the, on this process. And now, was that a use patent or what can you tell us about that? I think that's what you would call it would be a use patent because calcium soaps obviously were used in industry in other ways. 
yeah, and our procedure wasn't unique. Um, it was well known, so we 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 couldn't have gotten a procedural patent. So it was a use patent. Yeah. Yeah. And then my understanding was you that that patent was uh, either sold or assigned to Volac out of uh, the UK. Yeah, the, the, the Ohio State happen? University signed a contract with Volac. Yes. Okay. And were you involved in in that contract and supporting them, or or how did that come about? I was because we'd had cooperation during development, and uh, found that we worked well together. And what year was that in? I first met with them uh, to talk about the idea in October of 1981. Um, the patenting attorneys were not so kind to us, and it was 1987 before we were successful. We had to go back and do some additional research. I started in industry in 1991, and of course, there were a number of you know commercial fats on the market at that point. So. I didn't realize it was that late. So when, when were um, when were these products first commercialized in the U.S. Then, nineteen eighty-seven. Okay. Yes, I recall there was a test market. They started right there in uh, your home state of Ohio, or your adopted home state, and that's where they they first launched it. Uh, if memory serves. And uh, I was hired by Church and White shortly after that in 1988, was the very first business manager for Megalac uh, in the United States. So I had the privilege of, uh, as, a, as a youngster, of, of launching uh, a product that went on to be very, very popular uh, in the U.S. Consider myself very fortunate for that. And any, any nutritionally based questions from either or Kevin or, or Clay? Yeah, well, just, just the one follow-up I, I wanted to comment on. So I, I think... You, you can kind of get a sense that I've always been impressed with both both uh, of these guys and their chemistry background. And, and I think that's something that as nutritionists, we've been getting away from. And, and they, they might have some comments on if, if that's how we're training students in universities, that we're not getting as much chemistry or, or if we're just going in a different direction. But then the other part of that is, is these two guys really uh, developed some great fatty acid methodologies that that have been really key to having good methods in the lab for both analysis of feeds and analysis of digestibility because it, it, it's not easy to analyze and ex extract and get everything ready for the GC from from samples from from cows um, so so I, I might be biased because we use the methods in our lab, but I think they're they're the best methods we have. I would say that our research really didn't begin to progress until we had a good method for measuring. It was common to use ether extract, and ether extract is not precise. And it was, uh, Don, I think it was the direct methylation procedure that launched us in the right direction. That's correct. Uh, yeah. So we, you know, prior to that, we were extracting everything uh, and working with an extract. And we caught on to methodology that hinted to us about uh, a way that we could directly analyze fatty acids in feed without prior extraction. And we worked on that and we developed it. Uh, till it was working to our satisfaction, and uh, that really helped to launch us forward quite a bit. And and Don has been um, uh, a world leader in tr in trying to bring the attention at, at, to the direct methylation procedure for fatty acids, and especially uh, you know uh, m making sure that people understand uh, the advantages of fatty acid analysis over ether extract. And that was a, uh, a hard road to go down for him. Yeah. I, I think that's made a reasonable amount of progress the last couple of years. I, I, I think we're at the point where people really are wanting to use fatty acids and getting fatty acids um, rather than ether extract or crude yeah. fat. Yeah. And then this might be a good point place to point out 
going back to your first questions about how we got into this. We didn't set out to invent Megalac or anything like it. We were doing science and trying to find out why it wasn't working, what we had to do to make feeding fat uh, possible. And we approached it from the science standpoint, not trying to specifically get a product. Um, and I think that supports the the way that research should be done. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, well said. You know, in preparation for this podcast, guys, I was kind of thinking back over uh, the history, my career, right, uh, in, involved with uh, rumen inert fats. And, you know, it's been 40 years and a lot has happened in that 40 years. We've made a lot of progress in a lot of fronts, not just feeding uh, fats to dairy cattle. But one of the things that I got to thinking about uh, was my first year um, out of college. And I remember my, my first day at work and my boss at the time, I, I went to work for a company called Country Mark. His name was Jerry Woodard. And we were sitting at a, uh, at a McDonald's in uh, London, Ohio. And he's trying to teach me to balance dairy rations using the Pearson Square. Um, and, you know, I'm trying to, to understand that. And, you know, he's trying to train me. And, and I'm just reminded you know, how far we've come. It was a couple of years after that, right? We got our very first computers that we were using to balance rations with. And this thing looked like a, a, a suitcase. And the, the keyboard, you unsnapped and it came off the front and the printer was this, this heat sensitive paper that, that came out of the back end of this thing and curled up. And I'm just reminded how far we've come in terms of you know, um, how we balance rations, how we predict, you know, with, with the, the, the biology balancing programs that we have currently. So I'm, I'm just kind of curious from your perspective, uh, how were you guys balancing rations back in the day, uh, even before, you know, the early 80s? Well, the Pearson Square was useful. For me... Cornell, I took a course in statistics at Cornell, and it taught me how to invert matrices. And so I started ba balancing everything by um, algebraic equations. So if I had four unknowns, calcium, phosphorus, NDF, uh, protein, so forth, I had to have four or five equations separate equations to uh, put in there and then close those or invert those. And I learned the, the methodology for that back in uh, Cornell in that algebra course, which is the way some of these um, programs are doing it now, uh, using that. Yeah. Do you have a feel for where this might all be going, you know, 10, 15 years into the future? How will we be balancing rations, you know, 10 to 15 years from now? Any thoughts on that? Kevin, you might have a better better idea of where that might be going. Well, I, I, I want to throw out the question to him that I, I think our big challenge is predicting biohydrogenation and rumen outflow of fatty acids. And, and I, that's such a complex system. And, and I guess I would just kind of throw out there, do you, do you think we can can solve that? Is that within reasonable reach? I think Tom has done contributed a lot to that field already. I think your question is: Can we re regulate that process? Uh, can we predict it at least? Predict it, yeah. I yeah, I think predict it um, uh, within at least as good of boundaries as we're doing for anything else. And there's error associated with everything we're predicting, not the least of which is intake uh, of the animal. And uh, so if you want to talk about NDF digestibility or you want to talk about amino acid outflow, uh, there's inherent variability in animal to animal and errors in all those things. And I th to me... Um, uh, we're within the ballpark of staying with those in terms of, of keeping up with them. Now, you know, my big, di you know, my big disappointment in my career 
as not being able to find a good way to protect them from biohydrogenation when we wanted to do that. And I've tried several times um, at attempts at that, and it's, it was a road very, very hard to, to go down to completion. I could get part of the way down that road, but I couldn't get far enough down it. Uh, but uh, regulating is very difficult to see for a while, but uh, uh, predicting it, I think, is within reach. Yeah, so if you think about it, that's part of the problem is getting our ration balancers to give us the metrics so that we can pick targets, right? But but then um, it, I, why, why I wanted to talk about a little bit is, you know, does the cal have a requirement for fat? I, I don't think we use, we've traditionally thought of it that way. Um, just fat in general, but then even individual fatty acids. Any any comments on on that? Don, do you want to start that one off? Well, uh, the most significant effort in that direction, I believe, is uh, attempts by the people in Florida to establish an essential fatty acid requirement for calves. Very obviously, they, they need to have essential fatty acids. But uh, I don't think anybody has uh, been able to say they need so many grams per day Kevin, uh, you know, I don't know where you and I stand on that one, but the way I think of this is it's going to be very, very difficult for somebody to create a, uh, a fatty acid deficiency and show some classical sign yeah. to go along with it, uh, the way nutritional literature used to do that, those things. But I think what I, I always kind of equate in my mind the fatty acid nutrition is much like cow comfort. If your cow is comfortable, you can't say there's one thing. You're hitting the switch on one thing in there. You're relieving the stress on a lot of systems that leads to a positive outcome. And I kind of think fatty acid balance is kind of the same thing. It just helps to move all the systems up to a new level, uh, which in general helps the cow to become better in general. But to, to think there's one thing that's going to go wrong uh, that you can look at, uh, I, don't, I don't see that. Yeah, our, our problem is our traditional requirements, we like that clear break point, right? That, that yeah. once I fed this much, I made a requirement and everything's happy, but it it, especially when we talk about immune function, it's there's not going to be a clean, clean break. It, I, I actually want so Don, you're, I know years ago you made the recommendation of feed the amount of fat that a cow is making, and and we've I've kind of come back to thinking about that recently, in in trying like if you compare uh, our high producing cows to where we used to be. It, it's sort of interesting to think about how much fat that cow needs. One of the things that I always like to point out, I discovered that principle in in so many words, as you stated, at about 1990. Well, in, in L.A. Maynard's first edition of his book on animal nutrition, he shows that the cow produces more milk if she is produced if she is fed as much fat as she produces in the milk that was 1935 wow yeah. we 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 have to rediscover everything at least every 20 years right <laughs> yeah exactly so, yeah, and yeah. i think where where we've started thinking about this recently is like if you take your high producing cows a, you know, even a, a hundred pound cow making 4-0 milk fat, uh, that would be four pounds of fat, uh, which would be what, what I think we run up against then is the rumen limitation, right? And, and we just, we, we can't, we're, we're almost back to where you were when you started looking for calcium salts is saying, how, how do I get that amount of fat into this diet, right? Well, you can do it with the calcium salts. 
Yeah, but then if you go to that 150 pound cow at a 4-0 milk fat, you're you know you're up over eight percent of the diet maybe. But it, it's it's uh yeah I I I wonder I think for a while we were we were feeding fat based on safety to stay away from milk fat depression rather than thinking about fat as a nutrient that she needed to make milk fat. And I, I think the pendulum might be swinging back the other way now where we, we think about it, that, that is a requirement. Yeah, I think so, it's better to turn uh, to think in terms of amounts rather than percentages. So what are the, you know, from a, from a digestibility standpoint, what, uh, what do you think are the practical limits for fat feeding? Well, it clearly curves off and that probably is related to the biohydrogenation in the rumen that uh, saturates unsaturates to stearic acid and stearic acid clearly has a lower digestibility one gets over about well kevin said eight percent i'd say you can easily feed five or six percent to high producing cows and beyond that i prefer not to talk about percentages yeah and you know the uh uh, when they were studying the lipase activity, the intestinal enzyme that digests fat uh, in the small intestine, you know, they realized that it only had a fraction of the activity that uh, porcine had, uh, or humans, only like a third as active. Yet still, you know, when they were do doing those formaldehyde fat feeding trials in the 70s, they were shoving in a lot of triglycerides into cows and they were getting a lot of triglycerides down to the small intestine and, you know enough so that they could take linoleic acid that's normally two percent in milk and they could take it to 25 percent not that you'd want to do that mm -hmm. but it showed how effective those were and so the the cow despite having those apparently evolutionary biological limitations for digesting fat compared to other animal species was still able to deal with and accommodate um, a substantial amount of fat uh, going down there, you know, against the argument from the beginning that cows weren't equipped to handle fat, don't do it, but they do uh, a surprisingly good job at it, but there are limits like you guys are talking about. Yeah. Is there a difference well, I, whether or not you're feeding uh, fatty acids, free fatty acids versus triglycerides? With some certain limits, because everything, almost everything shows up in the intestine as fatty acids anyway, rather than glycerides. I was going to say, I did some studies on that for a company in uh, late 80s, early 90s. That we're trying to get into the bypass fat market because it was so hot and everybody was coming up with something and their answer was saturated triglycerides. Uh, they were certainly dry fat, but it went through them like candle wax. <laughs> yeah. They, you could have fed, I could have fed them candle wax and had better digestibility than for, what they for had. For bypass fat. For bypass <laughs> fat. Well, it they certainly were... is bypass. It's animal fat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's why, that's why we don't like that terminology so much. Right. Yeah, because it can be misleading to people uh, on some things. But, you know, those were very large particle size uh, chunks of hard, hard fat, Kevin. Uh, and then you, you've done some recent studies, you know, on melting points of these things and know that there's a big difference um, in saturated fatty acids and how they can uh, respond in that way. Yeah. Well, other than that uh, uh, melting point issue, um, I think the physiologically the limiting factor in digestibility is more likely uh, the amount of bile acid availability or bile salts than it is uh, lipase activity. Yeah, and I, I I've kind of wondered if we've if we've changed something there or if, if at the high intakes if we run into problems when you look at the literature there's there's a real big variation in digestibility now 
you have marker issues in, in a lot of challenges with digestion trials, but, but there is huge variation, you know, from 50 to 90% digestibility. Um, and it, any, any thoughts or comments do you think are high producing cows if passage rate or maybe, maybe bile secretion isn't keeping up and we have so much volume relative to the bile? I do know that, um, the amount of oleic acid available uh, is quite important in, in my cell formation. We're really talking about the ability to make my cells in the intestine. Okay. And um, if, if you can provide enough oleic acid, they are great contributors to the formation of my cells. And that could be some source of variability in that those studies that you're talking about. Yes. Yeah. 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 yeah I, I definitely think there's some factors there that we haven't identified just, just based on the variation that, that we see out there. I will say this, uh, in a rather extensive study I did one time with several different sources of fat, um, digestibility varied considerably among cows. But regardless of fat uh, source, cows that had high digestibility digested all fast fats uh, to a greater degree. And those that were low, it didn't matter what the fat source was. So there is definitely a difference among cows. Yeah, you, you'd expect as we've been selecting that we would select for cows that are more efficient because it, it would be energetically beneficial to them, right? Correct. Kind of a, an off-the-wall question, but has anybody done any experiments with trying to supplement bile salts to in increase the amount of fat that you could get into a cow? It's always an area I wanted to study and never found the right student. Yeah, you'd have to do it post-ruminal because you yeah. don't have any way to protect them. You know, you could. I'm sure you could demonstrate an advantage to it, but you couldn't get very far practical with it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it the rumen causes uh, all sorts of problems on the fatty acid side. For as much yeah. as it helps on fiber, it, it really hurts us on fatty acids. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just thinking about, you know, this future cow that, um, you know, future uh, nutritionists are going to be taxed with feeding, right? We've got uh, genomics and gene splicing and, you know, these animals are going to be able to produce a lot more milk than they are today. And I just wonder how in the world are we going to be able to feed these animals, right? How can we get enough groceries into them? And so any ideas or thoughts relative to well, that? Just, just one comment I'll make. I, 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 it, it, it's always interesting because when you go back, so Don, Don wrote a number of reviews on feeding fat. And, and it's, it's interesting just on the perspective of what is a high producing cow, right? Because, in, in 1980s, that cow was making a lot more milk than she had in the 60s, right? So the reviews are about how are we going to keep up to this cow? Now, when you go to the to today, I, I'm just curious if Don had in mind in writing that in the 80s, did you think cows could do what they did today? And now we're really the same question. How do we keep up to that cow? But then what's she going to be in 20 years? Well, cows now are have produced sixty to seventy thousand pounds of milk in a lactation, but herds in our area are they have thirty thousand pound herd averages, and uh, to me that's as interesting the fact that you can get a, a herd of cows to respond. Yeah, I don't think it's going to be too long before that's kind of commonplace, right? Um, you, you just see it year after year. You, everybody's asking, where is the top? Um, where is the top? Where, 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 when do we reach physiological capacity that, that it just cannot do it anymore? There's gotta be calculations, right? <laughs> so, so one, one co comment there, and then I, I, another sort of interesting nutrition aspect is, so I wonder at what point we stop trying to maximize the cow, but we'll try to be maximizing the, the farm unit and especially with robotics. So, so um, you know, at, at some point that robot becomes more expensive than the cow and we'll be trying to maximize efficiency of the robot. So it, it's gonna be interesting to see if that changes how we view improving cow efficiency that maybe, maybe a certain production level is 
good enough if she has the perfect udder and milk out time and things like that. But then the other nutrition thing to, to get these guys' opinion on. So when you start in 1980 it w or with, with calcium salts, part of that, that was component feeding, right? So, or, or previous to that, at least, I'm not sure exactly when TMR line in the sand is there. Um, but that would have caused a lot more problems for fat feeding than, than TMR feeding. But now with robots, we're kind of back in the same situation because a, a robot is partially component fed. Yeah, that's causing us problems at Clemson because we, we uh, have three robots, robotic milkers at Clemson. Uh, we don't have our traditional herringbone anymore. And uh, our nutrition studies uh, are, we're still struggling with with trying to plan our nutrition studies around the fact of how cows are going to be milked there and have to be fed uh, in the robot. So, yeah, it's changing us and forcing us to learn how to deal with that. You know, if we were to kind of summarize where we are today, what is the state of the art in terms of feeding fat to dairy cattle or the best practices how would you summarize that? Where are we today in terms of quantity, uh, fatty acid profile, uh, you know, fatty acids, triglycerides, those kind of questions. What do you think best practices for dairy farmers today? Yeah, I, I guess my, my view on this is that, that we're kind of in the spot where we're lucky to have a toolbox with a, a number of different tools. And, and, you know, a lot of those came, came from, from Don and Tom's work. Um, and to me, it's really the goal on the farm of if somebody's trying to maximize energy intake and milk production, or if they're trying to maximize milk fat, if they're trying to improve immunity or fertility, I, I, don't, I don't think we have a one size fits all perfect solution, or at least the not, I, in my opinion, we don't have the one size fits all um, but we have tools like calcium salts and things like that to utilize when, when we want to do a certain thing. Yeah, Scott, I, the question that you ask, I think is the one that gets asked by many nutritionists, and I think it's a mistake because I think they're looking for one, just exactly, I just want to reiterate what Dr. Harventine just said, because it's, they think there's one perfect way of doing this and they have to find out what it is and go that way and they'll never have any issues or problems. When in fact, the opportunities for feeding fat change all the time as prices change, as byproducts become on and off of the market, become um, or available as new commercial products become available. I think what nutritionists need to do is not look for one way to do things, but learn, learn the basic principles for how to manage and feed fat and then apply those principles to their best advantage uh, in their particular situation. So um, get away from the idea that there's, there's one way of doing things. Yeah. Well said. Well said. As you look into your crystal ball, what are we going to be looking at in the future, right? And I'm, I'm kind of thinking uh, about some of the work that Adam Locke's done with specific fatty acids in specific uh, combinations and specific amounts. You know, fatty acids, they're, they're, they're just not energy. They're bi bi very biological, biologically active compounds. So let's look into that crystal ball. Let's speculate. Let's get out on a limb. Where's it going? Where does it need to go? I can give one example, and Adam has been working on it. They, it's been shown by workers after me that different fatty acids have different uh, endocrine effects and so forth. Well, we did an experiment but didn't get all the measures we needed where if a cow was too fat, we fed her fat in uh, late lactation so we could get the, the grain out of the ration. Um, the measure we didn't have is insulin, but probably with less grain and more fat, we were lowering insulin 
And we were able to manage that cow so that she calved in proper body condition. So if you use fat in late lactation, you keep cows milking, but they don't get fat. I think that's a place to use it specifically. We're in my future now. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> uh, Kevin's future is ahead of him, and we're in mine because I gave I gave papers in four state conference in Dubuque, Iowa, in the mid 1990s, talking about how fat, how the non-caloric and tissue regulatory aspects of fat are going to be discovered and emerge, and we're in that now, and we're trying to discover it. Uh, and trying to make sense out of it. So we're right in the middle of where my future is. So And mine's long gone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, I would say from my view, to kind of split that question apart, one thing to talk about would be just how much more complex lipids are becoming. So, so, you know, we, we started out talking about energy and then started talking about omega-3 and omega-6 fatty acids. But then once those get in the body, they're made into all sorts of different signaling molecules. So we have, you know, a lot of oxylipins and there's been a lot of good work out of um, MSU vet school on, on those in the cow. Um, there's the ceramide story that's really growing. There's a, a lot of work in basic biology on that. Um, Joe McFadden at Cornell is doing a lot of work with that in the cow. Uh, and, and there's a lot of other bioactives out there too, all, all sorts of other, other factors. So it, it really becomes mind boggling on, on um, which ones to track. And then the technology is there to measure these, but they're not, they're not easy te techniques. So, so that's one part in the future. I think we're gonna, gonna really identify which one of these are important and figure out how to regulate them. Now, I, I'm hopeful that we can do that because we, we as animal scientists have a good track record there with, with the CLA story, right? So, so track down the, the CLA isomers that are causing milk fat depression, figured out how they're made. Tom did a lot of that, that really good work on the rumen, rumen side. Um, so, so that we sort of have the playbook on how to do that. It's just, it, it, CLA was complicated, but but what we have to work with now is is much more complicated um, than CLA. Just just from from my my perspective on it, um, but I, I think it's just this continual evolution. We the, the the mechanisms are there where fatty acids can modify physiology. We we have to figure out what we want to do, and and what I wonder about is that there's probably not going to be a perfect solution either there because Maybe it does one thing for the mammary gland for milk synthesis, but does another in adipose tissue and another in in the the white blood cell in the immune system, right? So, so we we might not have a perfect perfect situation. We might be picking it to do one thing, but have I hate to call it a side effect, but but there may be aspects of something that does that's not not optimal also. But the, I, I, there's huge possibility out there right now. Yeah, and if I could add one more thing to that, uh, I think the other thing is um, the interactions among fat, uh, fatty acids physiologically are, have been studied and established in tissue cultures and things like that. But uh, we may see them in cows one of these days so that if you're feeding a certain fatty acid hoping for a certain outcome, uh, you could totally interfere with the metabolism of that fatty acid by having too much or the wrong combination of other fatty acids present. So perhaps there'll, there'll be programs down the road that will try to model how to combine these all in the right amounts. Because right now we're just thinking one fatty acid at a time. One fatty acid does this, we need to have more of it in order to get more of the effect. But actually having too much of one fatty acid could be bad for, for the metabolism of other ones. So, Just uh, one, one other comment there, because I, 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 I want to go all the way back. So, so we kind of start talking about it, the calcium stalts part of the story. 
but really earlier in Don's career, he did a lot of isotope work and, and really, I, I call it, wrote the textbook on, on lipid, lipid metabolism. Um, and and I, what I just want to mention is we, we sort of have, a lot of what we do is driven by the tools that we have. I, ca I call it the toys that we have in the lab, right? So our current toys are mass specs and, and we can do metabolomics to identify these bioactives. But the, the, the tool that came out and widely available in the 60s was radioisotopes. Um, and I didn't know if, if Don would have any fun stories or, or, or good insight that came out of, out of that. I'm told there's probably still some radioactive places at the University of Illinois campus. <laughs> and before that at Davis, Max Kleiber used the old milk house for his lab and uh, it was dangerous to even walk past it. it you have a 14,000 year half-life on C14, so probably still dangerous. <laughs> yeah. uh, it got me into a bit of a trouble at Ohio State working with Don because we were doing a study using Euterbium-169 as a marker. And uh, uh, they were very, very nervous at the university about me putting this uh, gamma emitter onto feed particles that wanted to float around and that sort of thing. But uh, I was taking samples from a Dudino fishula every half hour for 48 straight hours. So I lived at the barn. And so eventually I took a bed in there and I tried to catch a little bit of sleep between samples. Dr. Ponquist, your department head at the time, did not like me having that bed in that barn. Uh, he was afraid of having a bed in any lab. <laughs> yeah. He threw out more than yours. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but sorry, I, I'm thinking of Don's uh, isotope data on palmitic acid, which, you know, palmitic acid is really top, top of our minds today in feeding. And, and we have to go back to that 1960s data to actually, that, that's really the only data on transfers and, and being able to track palmitic acid. Mm -hmm. We used that to establish uh, early in my career, the importance of having fat in the ration. And by looking at its uh, utilization in the blood, we, we established that, um, that fat, about three-fourths of uh, absorbed fat goes directly to milk fat. Well, gentlemen, uh, I could do this all night, but uh, Stephanie, she's just flickered the lights, which is a signal that this is last call. And so with that, uh, I'm going to get another round. I don't know about you guys, but uh, another Balvina for me, Steph. And uh, I am out. I don't know. You guys, uh, you're, you still got some there. Uh before we leave, uh, I'd like to ask you guys to, uh, you know, close us out with, you know, talk about what some of the challenges you are that, that, that lay ahead for the industry uh, in terms of nutrition. And then give us a couple things that uh, a couple words of wisdom that you'd give nutritionists in the field uh, that they can take home and, and actually apply at the dairy level. Well, I'll just say that, uh, most good young dairy farmers anymore have got that undergraduate degree uh, to help them on their way. That was a tall order. <laughs> that is Mr. Moderator. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Steph, bring him another drink. He'll get creative. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, well, I would say I, I, I think I'm still in the, the give myself advice, right? And the, the advice I always have to keep reminding it, it, myself and my students is to make sure we're, we're remembering what, what's in the literature and what we've already learned. Because um, I, I, I know things move so fast in, in industry and in, in science today. And we're always looking to make the next discovery and, and push ahead. Um, but, but there's a lot that we already know that we kind of forget that we know uh, and taking the time to go back and read the papers by these guys is really important when you're working in the fat, fat arena. Mm. Well said, Kevin, and that's a great way to, to lead us out. Yeah, go ahead. 
Uh, I was just going to tell uh, Kevin one thing Don and I know that you don't know, Kevin, is how fast a career goes. Yeah. We both know that. And uh, you've been at Penn State for what, 10 years? Uh, 12, yeah. 12 years. So you're approaching that midpoint, and we, both of us admire what you've done so far and uh, looking to guys like you and you in particular to help lead this forward because we know we're not in the position anymore to do that. But guys like you are what the industry is going to need to help keep this moving forward in the right direction. But So uh, I guess that's my advice to these nutritionists. Uh, who do you listen to? Uh, where do you get your information from? And uh, that's, that's important. Yeah. Just to kind of build uh, Tom on what you said to Kevin, uh, you and Don, I mean, you've built a great foundation, right? For Kevin and, and, and future scientists to stand on, they're standing on your shoulders and, and the future is bright. And, and much of that is, is thanks to you guys. So I, I appreciate you. And, and I want to thank you for, for spending some time with us here tonight. Uh, this has been a treat. I've enjoyed uh, every last minute of it. Look forward to having you back here some other time. And also want to thank our loyal listeners for stopping by to spend some time with us here once again at the Real Science Exchange. If you like what you heard, please remember to drop us a five-star rating on your way out. We have these, uh, these really cool shirts available. Um, if you will leave us a five-star and write us a review um, on Apple Podcasts, we'll send you one of these for free. Just send us a, a, a screenshot of your review and uh, we'll send it out to you. Send that to anh.marketing at balchem.com and include your t-shirt size and address and we'll get it right out to you. Also hit the subscribe button to get alerts for future podcasts. Our scientific conversations continue at the Real Science Lecture Series of webinars. Visit balchemanh.com slash real science to see upcoming events and past topics. We hope to see you next time here at the Real Science Exchange, where it's always happy hour and you're always among friends.